What a great joy it is for me as a pastor, a preacher of the gospel, to be able to address uh, such an incredibly important, pertinent, very timely uh, topic such as theism. Uh, is there a God or does uh, God exist? Again, we are uh, part of this Explore God initiative, and we're just having a great time. And in the, in the back, in the, um, during the camera stands and also in the Welcome Center, we have some cards that I'd love for our church members to pick up. And just uh, on the back are all the sermon titles and what we're going to be studying over the next uh, several weeks. And so as you go out in the restaurants or as you go at, in, in work or in your neighborhood, if you want to give some people these cards, I think that would be, that would be tremendous. Uh, you may be here today and you are an atheist. You're someone who says, uh, I do not believe uh, in a higher power or a, a God. You may be an agnostic. An agnostic says there may be a God, but as far as gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge, as far as knowing him personally or him knowing me, that is absolutely impossible. Or you may be a deist. A deism believes that, yes, there is a God. Of course there's a God. Just look around you. But he is so transcendent. He is so otherworldly uh, that he really doesn't have anything to do with me or this cosmos. He created it, he put it in order, but then he is detached. Or you may be a theist. A theist is someone who says, I do believe uh, in God, or I do believe in a multiplicity of gods. The Hindu religion has 330 million gods, so take your pick. Uh, other nationalities, especially in different countries, they have their own contextualized gods, such as animism. They believe in the spirits and the spirit world and that spirits inhabit different plants and animals and they, and they worship. So you may be a theist. And then again, you may be a Christian. And by the way, that's the one I am. And that's the one I, I propose to you today. You're someone who believes that there is an eternal, awesome God who created everything that there is and he came to earth as a human being, Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life and died on a cross and arose from the dead, and He lives forevermore, and He welcomes all to come to Him for forgiveness and for eternal life. I love to trace the stories and the journeys of people who moved from atheism to theism and eventually to Christianity. And by the way, if you're interested in that genre of literature, there's a lot out there. And one of my favorites is Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ. And he this Yale Law School graduate, yes, Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut, law school graduate, uh, began to set out to disprove Christianity because his, his wife became a follower of Christ and it made him so mad. And when you trace his life and his journey, it really is a phenomenal read and I highly recommend it, The Case for Christ. I also recommend a new biography that just came out recently, just this year, Alistair McGrath. He's a systematic theology professor at Oxford University. He's come out with a fantastic biography on C.S. Lewis, um, Clive Staple Lewis. And he was an Oxford uh, professor. And as I look back over that book again, I finished reading it. And I enjoyed it so very much. I, I tracked his life. I, I looked at his journey from he was a staunch atheist, C.S. Lewis was. And he was a very much an intellectual. He um, taught at Oxford University, and he was a very popular professor and lecturer, and he talks about his journey from atheism to theism, and then eventually on to Christianity, and the key event, one of the key events in his life 
was in uh, September the 19th, 1931. He had been thinking about God, and the thing that really dislodged his atheism was uh, Thomas Aquinas' argument for this moral argument for the existence of God. And so he says, you know, I can, I can understand where, you know, evolution can explain uh, the created world, and, and I, I believe, you know, that in these rational, uh, you know, naturalistic, empirical things, but where in the world, how could evolution ever explain the sense of oughtness? the morality of man, the conscience of man. Furthermore, aesthetics, harmony, beauty, joy. And so evolution and pure rationalism left him wanting. So he said, I'm open. I'm open, I will talk to you. And so he had a good friend, Hugo Dyson, and another good friend, you might recognize his name, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who wrote the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series and so forth. It's been so, uh, so incredibly popular. So they went on a little journey. And they talked there, these Oxford professors, they walked and talked until 3 a.m. And Tolkien says, you know, guys, i got to go to bed. So he turned around and walked off and went home. But Hugo Dyson and C.S. Lewis continued to talk until 4 a.m. October the 1st, 1931, C.S. Lewis wrote his words. Just passed on in believing in God to definitely believing in Christ in Christianity. I will try to explain this another time, but my long talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a great deal to do with it. And of course, C.S. Lewis Lewis became a great champion of Orthodox Christianity, and his book, Mere Christianity, is still read, widely read today, and of course, the Chronicles of Narnia. Am I coming in and out, or is it just me? Guys, don't be surprised. If there is a message that does not need to be preached today according to the kingdom of darkness it's this message and so God is in control and you say well you think the devil's in the details (laughs) so uh, now to use something else grab Terry's mic okay because I don't have to play the guitar I'm good all right God, you are God, even when I can't see you. Mm-hmm. These TV preachers, you know. I just need to get my hair slicked back and it'll all be good. So, you know. Uh, today, I am, I am very, very humbled to preach this message. I'm convinced that I have zero power to convince you or to convert you or convict you about Christianity. I, I am very powerless. Uh, we're, we're talking about something that only God can do. Only God can change your mind. Only God can convince you of the veracity and the truthfulness of the claims of Christ. And, and there is a, a real humility in me today because there are so many things that I do not know. Uh, There there are multiple things that I do not know, and I know that Christianity is a faith-based religion. You have to trust God. You have to uh, believe, and and so I know that some people say, well, you know, when I figure it all out, and when I get it all lined up, and and then then I will believe in God. Well, I want to tell you something, friend. You'll never never do it. 
there will always be some mysterious, existential, metaphysical something that you cannot figure out. But I am amazed at the faith that people do possess. Uh, People have absolute, unequivocal faith in a chef at a restaurant that they never see. They trust a surgeon to operate on them that they barely know. And all 1,000 of you today sat in a pew uh, that you had absolute faith in that it would hold you, but God, well, he's, He's a little more distant, and He's a little more hesitant to be trusted. There are so many things I don't know. In fact, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Would you think about that with me for just a moment? The secret things. In other words, these, these things are secretive. There are things that in our finite, limited minds that we cannot understand. But there are things, Moses says, which are revealed to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so first of all, I want to give a disclaimer, a little caveat about a word of humility because there are so many things that I do not know, but there's another word I want to share with you, and it's a word of passion. Um, Just because I'm I'm humble doesn't mean I'm I'm not passionate about what I I believe. You know, I've given my whole life to theism. I've given my whole life to uh, the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He really did live and He died and He arose and and he, he calls people to a relationship uh, with him. I was sitting on an airplane not long ago, and I sat next to a gentleman, and, and I began to talk to him about spiritual things. And he understood quickly where this conversation was going, and he said, I just want you to know something. I am not a God-fearing man. And I said, well, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't intimidate me. And uh, your questions don't bother me either. Do you have questions? Would you like to talk? And he says, yes, I would. And so we, we began to have this great conversation about uh, the, the things of God and how he is not a God-fearing man. And then he said, but you know what? You sound so much like one of my best friends. And I said, and who is that? He said, well, he's one of my high school buddies, and he became a Christian. And he's always trying to talk to me about this Jesus, and he always wants me to believe on this Jesus. And I said, well, think about that. What are the odds? Of all the people on this plane, 300 people on this plane, what are the odds that God would put me sitting right beside you? And he began to chuckle. Well, the atheist, uh, his name is Penn Jillette. Penn Jillette puts it just a little more forthright than, than this. He said, how much do you as a Christian have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you did not believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this everlasting life is way more important than that. Those are words of indictment. Those are words of, wow. That an atheist would say, if I believe what you believe, certainly I would share it, I would proclaim it. And so there is a disclaimer of, uh, of humility and passion, but let me get back to this concept of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, I want you to try to wrap your minds around uh, this concept. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God, stay with me, if you want to come to God, you must believe that he is. Not that you must figure everything out about him, 
but that you must simply believe that He is, that He does exist, there is a God, and then you will find that He will reward you as you diligently uh, seek Him. And so what I want to do today is present a case for theism and for Christianity. You know, I'm not an attorney, but if I could use the vernacular of an attorney or a lawyer, I'm going to seek to prosecute the case for Christ. And I want to ask you as a seeker to open your heart, open your mind, your volition, your will, whether you're watching us on DirecTV or whether you are watching us on the internet, which many, many people do, or you're here, I want you just to take a deep breath and just say, God, at least I am open, I'm intellectually open and honest to hear what this guy has to say because he believes it so passionately, and my friend has invited me, and so God, at least I'm, I'm open. First thing I want to share with you, and, and by the way, what I'm about to say in these two statements are known as general revelation and special revelation. General revelation goes like this. God speaks or God reveals himself through nature or through creation, and he reveals himself through the human conscience. Now, I know there's a third element to that trilogy, and I just don't have time to address it. It it is called uh, history. God reveals himself through nature, history, and conscience. And I get that. It's just, you know, this sermon's already going to be plenty long, and so I had to delete something. So I had to delete the fact that God has revealed himself through many uh, acts uh, of history. But these are the two that I want to address, that God reveals himself through nature or creation, and then God reveals himself through the human conscience. Paul says in Romans 1 that if you will open your eyes and look at the created order you will you'll have to come to the conclusion, if you're intellectually honest, that somebody, some intelligent designer, had to put this, what all we see, the cosmos, the universe, the world. And, and, and Paul goes so far to say that God, he, he says we are without excuse because he has so manifestly and magnificently and awesomely revealed his eternal nature and godhood and deity by the very things that uh, he has created. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. Have you ever thought about this, that the Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God? It, it is what philosophers call a priori. It is first, God assumes that you believe that he exists. The Bible is not a book really on apologetics to defend, defend. No, it comes from the viewpoint that once you believe, here, here is this great God and, he, and the Bible teaches us who He is, what, what He is like. And so, as I talk to you today about the, um, the existence of God and, and, and the reality of God, I want to take just a moment and walk you through some, some things that may, maybe you heard before, but, but maybe God would reveal to them, them to you in a fresh way. Psalm 19, 1 through 6 is a great passage of Scripture. In fact, it's the definitive text that I'm going to look at today. And I want to read it to you. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, or the expanse, the sky, shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. In other words, God's handiwork speaks to us. It's like He shouts to us, This is me. This is mine. I did this. I created this, and I'm allowing this cosmos, this universe, to speak to you. Uh, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. 
in them, in the heavens, in the expanse, in the firmament, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. And David talks about this amazing ball of fire that we know as a star today, the sun. He says, the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. The sun, its rising is from one end of of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You know, it's hard for me to just put into words just the vastness of our cosmos, of our, of our universe, but I'm going to attempt to do this for, for just a few minutes. When you think about the, the universe, the world, and most of you know this, that we live in our galaxy is called the, the MW, the what, the Milky, the Milky Way, all right? And the Milky Way galaxy is, is absolutely phenomenal. There are billions, by the way, billions upon billions and billions of galaxies. Ours is just one. It's called the Milky Way. And within the Milky Way, there are billions and billions of billions of stars. Our sun is just one of the billions and billions of stars. Now, when I say Milky Way, I know what some of you are thinking. The first thing you think is that right there. I know. That's... Uh, you say, there, yeah, amen, brother, Milky Way. That, that's what I think of the Milky Way. No, th- think a little deeper with me. Look at the next uh, visual. The Milky Way, as it comes up on the screen there, what an incredible picture that is. Uh, we've highlighted that the sun, by the way, is just a minuscule, just a, just a speck of dust in this Milky Way. And by the way, if you were to travel from one end of the Milky Way to the other, It would take you 100,000 years moving at the speed of light at 186,000 miles a second. It would take you 100,000 years, and that's just to get across our Milky Way. Think about this. In our Milky Way, I want to compare it to the continent of North America for comparison purposes, okay? If the Milky Way is the size of North America... Our solar system is the size of a quarter. Now try to find a quarter in North America and just a little speck, just a small little quarter, that is comparison to the size of the Milky Way. And let me say this again. And the Milky Way is only one of billions and billions of billions of other galaxies. And our sun is only one of billions and billions of other suns. And it just so happens that our sun is 92, 93 million miles away from earth. If it was a little closer, it'd burn us up. If it was a little further, we would all freeze. And yet everybody who has ever lived and ever will live, lives on this speck of dust we call planet earth. Which, by the way, is circling and moving around the sun in a football-shaped elliptical orbit. Does that make you feel small or what? I mean, and that's just a tiny bit. And and this is just one thing, the the Milky Way. So let's talk about life. How did life get here on this speck of dust? Stephen Hawking says at Cambridge University, and I watched this as he spoke these words, he said, DNA appeared three billion years ago. As a fact, DNA appeared But that's actually mathematically impossible. For a smallest enzyme, living organism, a macromolecule, a DNA, RNA macromolecule, in order for it just to appear, these evolutionary scientists have come up... (laughs) It's 
all right, sweetie. It's okay. That's all right. A lot of y'all feel that way, don't you? She's just saying it. Um, The evolutionary scientists believe, and they say this, in order for DNA to appear, as Stephen Hawking asserts, is 10th to the 340 millionth power. One chance in 340 with a with 340 million zeros behind the number 1, okay? One chance in 10th to the 340 millionth power did life just erupt in a primordial prebiotic soup. Now, that's evolutionary doctrine saying, I I know it's outrageous and I know it's mathematically impossible, but we have to believe this because the other alternative, well, that's God. And and we don't want to go there, but I do. I want to go there. The created order, and especially the highest of God's creation, mankind, shows enormous evidence that somebody somehow uh, crafted us or uh, created us. You know, there's these uh, classical arguments such as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And this is Thomas Aquinas when he said, when you look at the cosmos in all of its amazingness and its being in existence, for every effect there must be a cause. And so in order for us to have this, what we live in, somebody had to do it so the cause goes back to God. The teleological argument says, let's take that a little bit further. Teleos in Greek is purpose. Not only does this cosmos exist, and not only is it moving around the sun, and we're not falling off the planet, and not only are our bodies just absolutely amazing, they had to be created because they have purpose and they have design, and that's the teleological argument. The ontological argument for God's existence says, in the mind of man there exists this awesome, infinite, amazing other and an finite mortal man could not think that thought unless there was this awesome, infinite other. And then the moral argument, to me, I think is the strongest. The moral argument for the existence of God says, man has a sense of oughtness. Man has a sense of right and wrong from whence did that come. Francis Crick tells us where it comes from. Francis Crick is the one who discovered the DNA macromolecule. Brilliant scientist that he is. And he says, well, I'm, I, and he literally says this. He says, you have got to keep telling yourself, I know it looks like it was created, but keep telling yourself that it's not. It's not because here's what happened. Billions and billions of years ago, and he has a theory called directed panspermia. You can read about this. Billions and billions of years ago, we know how life landed on planet Earth. Francis Crick, DNA macromolecule, one of the most brilliant scientists but poorest theologians you'll ever meet. He says, billions of years ago, aliens got in an interstellar travel module, and they left their planet, and they came to our planet, and life erupted off of this planet, and all that we are, and all that we'll ever be, can be explained by the aliens. Who made the aliens? Why are there still monkeys? I get it. I get it. 
I just think about the human body. Isaac Newton said, you only have to look at your thumb to know there's a God. The nervous system, the circulatory system, the brain, the heart. Psalm 139 says, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully created. I am made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows it very, very well. Not long ago, Ashley and I and the kids, we went to uh, Mount Rushmore up in South Dakota. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is absolutely amazing. When you look at those four presidential profiles etched in stone, you have to ask yourself, well, how in the world did that get there? Well, I know how it got there. Just you give it enough time and with enough uh, wind and with enough rain and those presidential profiles will just appear miraculously. But Gutzon Borglum would disagree. Um, he's the sculptor who took all those years and all that training and he guided the sculpting process. And yet there are people who really believe that Lincoln... And Washington's courage. And Roosevelt and Jefferson's brains came about as a random, purposeless process called macroevolution. There is a book out, I highly recommend it, and I, I totally endorse it. And it says, I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. God has spoken. He has revealed himself. We, we literally have to Shut our eyes and do what Crick says. Stop, stop it, stop it. Don't think about it, don't think about it. Because if you keep thinking about it, you'll have to conclude there is a God. But, but there is no God, there are aliens. And Darwin would say, maybe not aliens, but natural selection, mass mutation, random process, random, 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 and all that we are is that. Or the other option is, in the beginning, God created it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says this. It's a powerful verse. The spirit of a man, or if you want to say the soul of a man, the conscience of a man, is the lamp of the Lord searching all the inner depths of his heart. So God speaks. He speaks through nature. He speaks through the created order. He speaks through conscience. He speaks through oughtness. He speaks through history. But how else does God speak? Or if God exists, has he ever put human, human flesh on? Well, I share this with you. God speaks through the Word. He speaks through the written Word, and he speaks through the living Word. And, and by the way, some of y'all, you, you know where I'm going with this. You're saying, but, but wait a minute, you're biased. You're now moving out of theism into Christianity. Well, take a look around. This is not a mosque, okay? This is not a Buddhist temple. And by the way, if you're interested in Buddhism or Islam, I encourage you to juxtapose and study Christianity and all the other world religions. I really, I, I honestly ask you to do that. Y'all seen this little... Bumper sticker is so popular in Austin, it's called Coexist. Y'all ever seen that? Can I just go on record and say that is absolutely intellectually dishonest? Because no world religion believes that. Every major world religion has what you call absolutes and exclusivity. Okay? 
we do too. It's up to you as a, as a man or a woman with a thinking mind, it's up to you to decide who's right, who's wrong. By the way, not everybody can be right. Only one person can be right. Can I just go ahead and say this? I'm going to go with the guy who arose from the dead, okay? That's, that's the one I'm, I'm going with. Is he arose from the dead. And so as we talk about the Word, I want to talk to you about the, living, uh, and the written Word and the living Word. First of all, I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 16 and 17. And this is the Bible, and this is what the Bible says about itself. It says, all the Bible, all of the writings, graphe, Scripture, is given by inspiration of God, theonoustos. And theonoustos means God-breathed. And it is profitable for the following, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, that we would be complete, thoroughly equipped for every uh, good work. This past Thursday, we had 160 people meet at 6.45 a.m. in the Great Hall, and, and we began studying bibliology, the doctrine, the study of the doctrine of, of Scripture. And, and I didn't get very far, and so this Thursday, if you're coming back, be ready to go fast, okay? Because there's so much I want to talk to you about the truthfulness of the Scriptures and how we got it and why are there only 66 books and, and so forth. But then again, it's going to boil down to do you believe this book to be uh, God's, God's Word? It is a book about revelation. It a priori, again, reveals God. It's a book about redemption. There's a scarlet thread that runs through it from Genesis to Revelation. And there's this thing called prophecy in the Bible where the prophets, they talk about a coming king, a coming Messiah who will one day reign. And, and we as believers in Christ, we see that 400 plus prophecies fulfilled in the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. And speaking of whom, he's called the, the living word. And let me read this to you in John chapter 1. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then look at verse 14, it says, in the, and the Word became flesh, and it, He, the, the Word, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Obviously, this is the doctrine of the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity, the triune God, was placed, the second person of the Trinity, placed within the placenta of a female named Mary, Virgin born, God in the flesh, staggering. By the way, no other religion claims this. And no other religion certainly does not claim that their leader or their teacher bodily raised from the dead. In fact, Buddha says, I'm, I'm still trying to figure myself out. And Muhammad is still in the tomb, his dust to dust. At least his ashes are in the tomb. His spirit is somewhere else. Somewhere else. So, the Bible says that there is a God. And he is alive. He is revealing Himself. He is speaking to us. He is basically shouting at us. And He is a God of revelation. He's a God of redemption. And again, the Bible's not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you. It, it just doesn't. It just assumes that you're going to believe in this and that you're going to begin to, to understand 
this thing called uh, faith, the Christian faith. The last thing I want to share with you today is uh, God speaks not only through nature and history and conscience, and God speaks through the written word, the Bible, and the living word, Jesus, but God also speaks through changed lives, through people whose lives have been radically changed by something, by someone and, and the best example I can think of is Acts chapter 9. This is the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was the greatest persecutor of the Christian faith. And by the way, there is a faith that is extremely intolerant and will persecute you and will kill you. Christianity is not that faith, by the way. Christianity has never, never in its purest form been that religion. What about the Crusades? In its purest form, it has never been that way. It derives its, its very life from its founder, Jesus Christ, who was a person of love, a person of forgiveness, a person who, even though he's loving and forgiving, he always told the truth. For example, he, he talked about things like hell, things that people don't want to hear about hell. I mean, you know, like Charles Darwin said, hell cannot exist because if it existed, my family is there, therefore it cannot exist. So much for rational, syllogistic, you know, logic. But Paul, Saul, is walking down the road or riding down the road going to Damascus. Now, that's a, that's a place that's making the news, Syria. And as he's on his way to Syria, he, he journeyed, he came to near Damascus, and a, a light shone around him from heaven. Next verse. The light shines around him from heaven. Okay. Sorry, I don't have it memorized. And it says, he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then when you read the remainder of the story, you'll know that Saul, he comes to faith in this risen Christ, and he becomes no longer the persecutor, but its greatest prince and champion of the Christian faith. To me, I know this is a little more existential, but to me, this, this is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. You say, but all religions have this. All religions say you convert to uh, Islam, or you convert to Buddhism, or you convert to Confucius, or you convert to all of these other religions, and that's, that's true. They, they do purport that. Then I would ask you, go ahead and follow that out and juxtapose, compare, and contrast the two Again, not everybody's right. In fact, they will say that's, that's exactly right. Somebody is correct and somebody is incorrect. But again, I'm so impressed and amazed with Christianity because when you extrapolate Christianity to its basic rudiment, it is not a warlike religion. Or it's not this karma, you know, you go out into the cosmos, you come back in the cosmos, you go out of the cosmos, you come back in the I'm thinking that there's got to be a better worldview. There's got to be a, a, a more coherent and intelligent religion. And I believe it's this one. The power of a changed life. I don't have a fascinating testimony, but I do have a testimony of a person whose life was radically changed by the power of, of the gospel. Um, to say that all this is a farce, it doesn't exist, then you're saying my life is meaningless. And all my 
life and all my education and all that I've poured myself into is a fable. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. But I would beg to differ that I am here because there is a God and He's revealed Himself and Jesus Christ is, is absolutely amazing. I would encourage those who debate and, and, and question Christianity, I would encourage you to go back in 1949 and go to communist China. In communist China, there was a powerful regime, the communist movement, and it began to squelch any residue of religion, whether it's people who had temples and gods and goddesses or whether it was Christians, houses of worship, you name it. I mean, they set out to absolutely destroy any residue of religion. There were 700,000 Christians in China beginning in 1949, but here's what happened. Since 1949 and 2013, there are no longer 700,000 Christians. There are 100 million Christians in China where they were supposed to be squelched and and put out. They now exist. And you'll find the same in places like uh, Russia and other regimes that persecuted faith to find out that instead of it killing faith, it only made faith erupt. You know, and I'm finding this like in Egypt. It's so cool. I read just this week, and I don't know if y'all know this, but Christians are being butchered in Egypt. Their houses of worship are being burned to the ground. But the Christians are telling their Muslim persecutors, we love you, we forgive you. And I want to tell y'all something, guys. It is making a difference in the Islamic world. Because they're going, wait a minute. Why don't you retaliate? Wait a minute. Blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What are you doing this? Why why aren't you taking my life? And they say, because we believe that Jesus Christ would not have us do that. He would have us love you and lay down our lives for you. And it's blowing their mind. Because there is no power like that of a genuine changed life. Stoyan lived in an Eastern European nation. Stoyan's story, S-T-O-Y-A-N, is told in this book called The Insanity of God. Again, it's, it's the best book I have read in, in years, besides the Bible, of course. The Insanity of God, the, the author's name are Nick and uh, Ruth Ripken. That is their pseudonym because their lives could, could be at risk. In fact, they are coming to Great Hills Baptist Church. We've been working on this for many, many months, and thank you, Mike Miracle, over in South Asia. We think that we finally nailed it down because they're in absolute such demand. We think we can get them in March of 2014. Nick Ripkin tells us the story of Stoyan. Stoyan, his father, was a pastor, an evangelical pastor in this Eastern European country where it was unlawful and forbidden to be a person of faith. His dad was arrested, and he spent the next 10 years of his life in prison. The first nine months in this particular prison before he was moved around, now this is going to gross some of you out, but I'm just going to be real with you. This is what happened to him. For nine months, they would give him one piece of bread for breakfast, a piece of toast, and this one guard would use the bathroom on this piece of toast, spread it across the toast, and say, here's your breakfast. And he ate it. He either ate it or he died. And this was a very powerful atheistic regime, and they were trying to stamp out Christianity. And so Stoyan's father was 
place. He was incarcerated. He was brutalized. He was mistreated for 10 years for doing exactly what I'm doing today, for preaching the gospel. And so Stoyan and his brothers and sisters and his mom, they, the authorities came to them and said, because your dad, because your husband is such a deceiver, you've got one hour one hour to pack everything that you can get in a bag. We're putting you on a train, and we're taking you to a place that you've never been, and your father pastor will never find you. So in one hour, can you imagine in one hour you had to get what you could, and you're, and you're the wife, and you get your kids, and they put you on a, on a train, and, and you're going who knows where, and they take you to a destination, and you don't know really where you are, and you're thinking, I, my husband will never find me. He will never find our children. And while they're still on the train, This man walks on the train, and he walks up to Stoyan's wife. I got chill bumps on me. He said, can I ask you a question, ma'am? And she said, "Uh, I don't know you. And he said, let me ask you a question. Is your husband the pastor who's in prison? And she said, he is. And this is what this man told her. Our church was meeting last night. During our prayers, the Holy Spirit told us to take up an offering and for me to bring it on this train to give it to you and to escort your family to your new home. He lowered his voice and said, here's enough money for six months. We will bring more when this runs out. Amazing. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of of being part of a greater movement, a living organism greater than yourself, the church. Stoyan's father continued to suffer in prison, and now Stoyan is going to be like his dad. He wants to be a pastor. Three times a day, every day, the authorities made him check in just to check on him, to make sure he was doing nothing illegal. Well, finally, the day came, and, and, and Stoyan was released, and supernaturally, he, he found out where his family was located. He made his way to where the family was located, and boy, they had this joyous celebration. And within weeks, guess what Stoyan's father began to do? He began to pastor a church again. <laughs> he began to lead people to Christ. He began to disciple them. One of the ladies in his congregation came up to him and said, Pastor, Pastor, would you, would you please come and, and pray and, and help me? Please, please help my, help my son. Help my son. He's a diabetic. He's gone blind. He only has a few days to live. Please, please come and pray for him. And the pastor said, well, I will, I will. And so he went by, got some medicine, made his way to the lady's home and She said, come, come, my son is blind. He will not be able to recognize you, but please come pray over him, pray over him. And Stoyan's father walked in that bedroom and he was frozen, frozen and paralyzed. That man lying there was the guard who put his excrement on the toast for nine months. And Stoyan took a step back. He took a deep breath. And he said, God, please help me. He took that medicine. He put it in that man's hand and he knelt beside his bed and he prayed for him. He said, how do you do that? How does one do that? I think it's another argument for the existence of God. It's called the power of a transformed, a power of a changed life. 
So today I, I conclude my, my message um, with these words. Maybe you are here today and who knows, maybe you moved out of um, atheism to agnosticism. And that, I think that's good. <laughs> maybe you moved out of agnosticism into theism and out of maybe that into deism and maybe out of that into Christianity. That would be, that would be awesome. And if you do that, I assure you, it will be because God has spoken to you. And God has drawn you. And he has used me and my weakness and my humility and passion. He has used me to speak to you because I really had nothing to do with it. I'm just a, an ambassador. And I tell you, the older I get and the more I preach and the more I live, I realize just really how small I am. Maybe that's a sign of maturity. I, I hope it is. Because the more I know, the more I realize how much I, can you all help me? I don't know. you're here today, and you feel like God is drawing you, and He's spoken to your mind, He's spoken to your heart, He's inviting you to have a relationship with Him, the Bible says that if you'll call upon His name, if you'll commit your life unto Christ, He will save you, and He will be your God, the one true God. Maybe you're here today, and you say, well, I still have questions, and I, and I still want to process this. I still want to think this thing through. Then by all means, you don't hear me shouting at you, telling, telling you. to. No, I'm, I'm just telling you, God loves you, and, and God speaks to you. And, and I, I do pray before it's too late that you will believe, you will believe on him. Some of you are here today, and it's so, so encouraging to me. I've, I've met so many uh, amazing uh, single adults and families that are moving to the greater Austin area, and God is God is just drawing them to our church, and, and that, that is such a blessing. That is so encouraging to me because I see God, you know, working through our radiant church, and he's bringing people to our church who will help us, who will help us uh, be radiant, who will help us reach our city. And, and maybe you're one of those single adults, or maybe you're one of those family members, and you would say, you know, man, I don't agree with everything you say, and I, but, but I believe God's in this place, and I, I want to be a part of this church. We, we welcome you. And if he is leading you to be a part of our church, then I also believe he's leading you to come to our, to our class. Because in our church, we've, we've raised the bar on membership. We've raised it up high for you. We want it to be a challenge to you because once you join, understanding who we are, we believe you'll want to commit. You'll really want to serve. So I, I invite you, if God so leads you. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for a time of just study. We thank you for all the distractions because, Lord, even in the midst of the distractions and in my weakness, God, I believe your, your strength has been made perfect. And, God, I thank you today that there is someone or some groups of people here that this was precisely the message they needed to hear about God and about this one awesome God who's revealed himself. So, Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself. I pray, God, you'd draw people to your church, to Great Hills Baptist Church, and you would make us this passionate band of believers who love you and worship you, who teach your word unapologetically. Yet, Lord, we want to teach it with compassion and humility. And also, Lord, our church that wants to reach the world with the gospel. Lord, I, I know our church is not for everybody, but I know it is for a bunch of somebodies. And I, I pray that you would point those people out and bring them, Lord, to us so that they can join us and help us. Father, thank you for what's about to transpire over the next few moments as we stand in your honor and recognize who you are and we worship you. And, 
And as we do this, God, you're so amazing. You, you speak to people and you draw people into a relationship with you. And you draw them into a relationship with the church. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we would pray for our counselors. We'd pray for our pastors. You'd give them great wisdom and give them great uh, joy as they speak to those, God, that you're about to send to us. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We confess with our mouths and we believe in our heart that God Almighty raised you, Jesus Christ, from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we confess, we admit, we gladly confess that we are followers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in whose name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Terry's going to lead us in our song of invitation. We invite you to come. You may want to come to the altar and pray. You may want to speak to one of these pastors. You may want to speak to me. I kind of hang out over here on the side. And I'll be glad to pray with you, encourage you as Terry leads us. God bless you.